The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. So it is not just a question of having more capacity in your, let's say, power grids. It is also how you actually use it and how you um, use it in a smart way. What technologies, what data, um, what new type of uh, grid systems you are uh, building, that all plays together uh, in order to have a reliable electrical source for the long term. That was Peter Voser, former chief executive of Shell and current chair of ABB, talking about a subject that's absolutely key to the energy transition, overhauling the world's electricity grids. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with the key people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm George Hay, the EMEA editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from London. For this week's episode, I chatted with Peter Voser, chairman of the big Swiss industrial group ABB. Peter has a particularly interesting perspective on the energy transition. Between 2009 and 2013, he was chief executive of the oil major now known as Shell. Since 2015, he's also chaired ABB, a global heavyweight in the field of automation. With his ABB hat on, he explained the importance of energy efficiency in preventing electricity demand soaring beyond the capacity of the existing grid, and how European companies are adapting their supply chains and approach to deal with the new world order. With his shell hat on, he thinks European oil majors can still successfully transition away from fossil fuels while maintaining their relevance, despite the likes of BP throttling back on the speed at which they exit oil. Give it a listen. Right, well, hi there, Peter. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having us, having me here in um, in this podcast. So Great. Um, well, it's great to have you on. Um, what we really want to talk to you kind of, uh, first of all, about is electrification. Um, ABB is a major player in that. And electrification is also you know, an imperative for the global energy system over the next decades, uh, a couple of decades to move away from fossil fuels. And I just wondered, with your knowledge of the sector, what do you think are the key barriers to electrifying the world? I mean, is there enough is there enough actual investment in the kind of stuff that needs to happen, such as the grid infrastructure, things like that? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. Um, I think we have to recognize that not everything is about sustainability when you talk about the challenge for our customers. Right. Uh, they are balancing on the one side the emissions quite clearly and rising energy costs, but at the same time they want to enhance productivity, the uptime safety, but whilst also tackling uh, skill shortages, uh, the demographic starts to play a role. So right. uh, with all of this, we need to build resilience into uh, the energy system, into the electrification system, which will allow actually all this uh, to happen. And therefore, one needs to combine electrification also with automation, and therefore in, in innovation and technology plays a big role. Right. And let me start with a few things which need to happen for this uh, really to be successful. One is we need to change behaviors as well of individuals or companies. That means energy savings, energy optimization is yeah. the key word. And a lot of that can be done today because for example, in ABB, we have motors on drives, so electric motors and drives, right. depending how you use them, you can save 30 to 40% of the energy consumption you have today. If you 
wants to be independent, you can build a microgrid, for example, for yourself uh, with smart readers, smart technologies, so that you can actually deal with the electricity flow which comes from renewables, but, um, which is not always actually the same. So you need yeah. to have sta stabilizers, balances, etc. So this can all be done with technology today. So it is not just a question of having more capacity in your, let's say, power grids um, yeah. lines. It is also how you actually use it and how you um, use it in a smart way and what technologies what data, um, what new type of uh, grid systems you are uh, building, that all plays together uh, in order to have a reliable electrical source for the long term. That's interesting. So it's, it's not just about having spending billions or trillions on building a much bigger enhanced grid system for all this electricity then. You, you're saying you say, I mean, presumably that is part of it, right? But um, it's it's also that you have to be more efficient in how you're using um, uh, electricity, which would allow you to use more of what the grid that's already there. Is that, is that is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. So you can achieve a lot with that. Always remember that the grid was actually built for fossil fuels in that sense. The power generation which comes out of hydro, but also a lot out of fossil fuels. Therefore, it was quite stable, steady. What you get with renewables now coming in, you need clearly to manage this in a smarter way because otherwise you have got outages, etc. So yeah. therefore, you can use smart technologies in the current grid to actually make that more stable and therefore also have a, a better capacity usage. At the same time, you need to work on energy consumption reduction which you, in, in order to free up the peaks when you're actually using electricity, because these grids, they are built for a certain, uh, let's say, average flow. If you have yeah. too many peaks in it because your renewables uh, inflow doesn't work, you need yeah. to manage that. And that can be done in much smarter ways with today's um, technology. And that's smaller investments that you can do in a commercial building, that you can do with a separate microgrid, etc. So it is not just building new lines across the whole of Europe or the US. It is much more than that. Right. OK. Well, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting that you're talking about energy efficiency and, um, and demand, because right now in the last year, given we've had this big energy crisis in Europe, EU industry have bas basically had to take up the, the, the strain of reducing some of its energy demand i just wondered kind of what you what what kind of lessons for you know what what we're talking about there about energy efficiency that you have you kind of picked up from what eu industry have man, has managed to do i mean it's they seem to have in in, in germany and the netherlands in particular they seem to have kind of done pretty 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 big reductions but is that a kind of it's obviously been rather painful and enforced on them. So, like, what lessons are there for the the wider theme of energy demand reduction? Are you, are you, would you draw from that? Yeah, I think uh, the world or the industries, but also private um, individuals or families, they have learned one thing, which is actually they can have the same living standard, but but actually consume less energies right. if they maybe on the one side invest a little bit or if they increase 
multi uh, and use multiple sources. Um, if they do investments in their house, uh, if they have your their rooms only 20 or 21 degrees instead of 23, 24. So there was mm. a huge learning going through. The more strategic learning, in my opinion, what everybody has realized, and especially the industries as well, and the governments, is actually that there is not one solution. The energy system of the future will include various technical solutions. Yeah. Renewables is one of them. You have hydrogen, but it will need, need gas for quite a while um, in order to bridge, uh, let's say, from the, today's consumption into future consumptions. Um, as we already said, installing energy saving components is another one. So it will all, you need all of this in order to bring the demand down, whilst to make them the supply more resilient in, and have the right quantity of it. And I think over the last 10, 15 years, and I remember my discussions with many governments in Europe, for example, when I was in my old job, where they were all putting everything on renewables and they forgot actually that they need um, a mosaic of, of solutions for the longer term. And I think we have paid the price for that now over the last um, 12 months, uh, right. but it has now brought more realism into the discussion that it will take time to build a fossil fuel free energy system in the longer term and certain components we will need much longer. You cannot yeah. just that's I mean that's very interesting because obviously you mentioned your previous job um you were uh, sh uh, running shell uh, for some time um and I mean that those particular companies at this stage are a really quite interesting um position but I mean particularly the European ones shell BP total energies they have been some more than others trying to kind of invest in rene renewables and kind of uh, emphasize that part of their businesses and, and, and kind of say that they are like stewards of the energy transition and that kind of thing and at the same time Exxon and Chevron in the in the states are doing that rather less and they are kind of re clearly valued quite a lot uh, more highly by the market and I just wondered what you thought about you know given your knowledge of Shell what 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 I mean what do you think of these European uh, energy companies at the moment are they do they are they do they basically have the right strategy or do they need to kind of focus a bit more on oil as BP mentioned the other day or um or how would you how would you look at it? I think there are two different strategies here, and the Europeans in general they normally build um, their businesses from scratch, whilst the U.S. companies do much more through acquisitions. Right. If you if I use an old example, if you go back some 20, 30 years ago when Shell, but also others in Europe started to focus much more on gas rather than oil, because we saw the long term benefits of gas yeah. um, and the availability of it, uh, less CO2, etc. Yeah. The Americans didn't actually follow. But Exxon bought Mobile, and why did they buy mobile? It's a marketing asset, but it was mainly the gas side. Right. So you, you can have different strategies and you may take into account that you have a multiple which is lower for a while because you're building that uh, right. business from scratch, but you are also learning it. 
you are building the technology, you bring your innovations in, and that should give you in the longer term a clear advantage of being or leading in those businesses, in these new businesses like hydrogen, etc., where the oil majors in Europe are, uh, oil gas majors in Europe are kind of doing R&D since 20, 25 years on it. And yeah. they will have then, let's say they will build this in an organic way, in a much more sound, wide, transforming way, and will not wait until they can buy something. So there is a different approach here, and you can see this in, his, in the history of all of these uh, companies, the Europeans and the Americans. And personally, obviously, um, I'm more of a, a person who likes to build the business um, and gain uh, the, or, and build the skills inside the company in order to actually uh, drive the long-term success rather than actually going through major acquisitions. But that's um, different philosophies are at work here. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. But it's, uh, I suppose it's just what seems to be happening is that, um, I mean, and presumably the reason why BP uh, decided to pump a bit more oil in its plans the, the other day is is that uh, in, in investors in these companies, they see, I mean, I think if you invest in Exxon or Chevron, then you, you're pretty clear what you're going to get. Whereas if you're investing in uh, Shell or BP or Total at the moment, um, it seems like they're trying to ride two horses and at the same time, which is never particularly easy to do. And it's just, and I take what you, your point about the fact that they're trying to build something new, but, um, you know, ultimately, do you think it's kind of realistic that, you know, the winners from the energy transition are going to be companies like Shell or BP, um, or are they more likely to be, you know, companies that are already you know, that aren't kind of encumbered by the fossil fuel path. So like, you know, NL or Iberdrola or these players who already have lots of renewables capacity. No, I think they will be part of the, the winning um, team in that sense, because let's not forget they have many attributes and skills already today, um, especially again, the Europeans. They have huge marketing businesses, so they know how to deal with end consumers, which is right. important. Um, electricity for the future. On the other side, they also know how to build big infrastructure projects, wind farms, etc. They have an advantage there. Um, the Europeans, contrary to the Americans, are big trading houses. Electricity yeah. will be a good, you trade a lot. That's where you can use your skills and make money. Uh, they have a huge R&D effort in, uh, in, in the European companies for decades already going after these new technologies and therefore I think they're well positioned to be part of the tran uh, the transition but also then be part of what I call the final business uh, structure uh, because they have all the ingredients which are needed to actually be successful and the way I look at them uh, they're on the right journey all of them have slight differences in their strategies and that you have um, that you go at speed for certain things, like in the case of BP, where you then have to maybe readjust a little bit because right. you also have to finance these things. And the world may now more, need more oil and gas than what was previously anticipated. I think that's also part of a normal adjustment strategy by going through the building of a new business um, model okay. for long-term future. Okay, so but I mean, if you were, if you just uh, by some strange quirk of fate happen to be running Shell uh, again, 
um, <laughs> as if you want to, but like if you were doing that, like you know, would would you be looking at the the trans? Would your transition strategy be okay? Well, we're going to, um, you know, focus on areas where there might be some read across, like I don't know, biofuels, bioenergy, um, uh, hydrogen, and maybe a bit of you know carbon capture, that kind of stuff. Or would you be you know going gung ho into you know wind and solar and just trying to kind of build out that or would you be doing both i think it's an and point as you also will and this goes back to what i said earlier the realism which has come back into discussion now that we need both so you need to go from the fossils you have today through the biofuels through advanced um, uh, jet aviation fuels etc uh, you need to go through uh, to different solutions in the longer term. So someone has to do the intermediate period as well to the final product. And I think that's where these companies are ideally positioned. But they also want to gain experience to run the absolute renewables like um, uh, like uh, solar and, and, and wind, etc. And yeah. let's also remind ourselves in the early 2000s, the Europeans, they have been already in renewables, solar and wind, but it was too early. They then actually, all of them, reduced their investments there, focused right. more on oil and gas. And now they're going back to that strategy, which we all they already had at the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I still right. remember when we produced solar panels in Germany, when we had uh, offshore wind, when we did um, um, forestry businesses. Etc. Right. So it was all tried before, it was too early. Now it comes back, and I think that's where they will focus on both of so the long term solution, uh, pure renewables, but also bring in advanced technologies like hydrogen, the biofuels, and, and other uh, technologies. And so you don't, you don't, you don't carbon think capture included, huh? Right. Okay. But you don't, you don't think um, that where we are now, and certainly what BP did the other day, you, you wouldn't see that as a kind of uh, or, or would you would you would you see that as quite similar to what happened you know the the, the pullback you know 15 20 years ago or um uh, i mean obviously the difference is that the cost of renewables now is uh a lot lot lower and um you know a lot has changed and we're much closer to the kind of business end of the energy transition so it depends i mean how how great do you think the pullback from the from the europeans is going to be now no, I wouldn't see this as a pullback. I would see right. this as an adjustment to a, a changed energy demand balance, right. which uh, as a consequence of what we have now gone through the last two, three years, I wouldn't be surprised if over time you will then get that shifted uh, again. But I think it's important uh, to have enough capital to invest in in this in, interim period also that we have the world right. has everything we need because otherwise we only will actually pass on all the oil and the gas to the national oil and gas companies and don't play um, that vital role of bringing some balance into the overall uh, supply uh, and demand balance for oil and gas in the world because right. we should not forget the, the majors also play that role Right. Okay. Just shifting gears a bit, um, literally, um, from the perspective of electric vehicles, you know, AB, ABB takes a very close look at, you know, uh, what's going on in that sector. 
how much does it matter for the rollout of EVs if Western countries don't have the same level of battery manufacturing capability as China has? Um, and kind of more more broadly, like just on this issue of critical minerals, how much of that is, how much of that is a break on what we're talking about with the energy transition and electrification? Personally, I think that the rollout of the charging infrastructure, but also the EV cars, hmm. so far has not slowed down because of the dependency of a very few players or one country. I come back to some numbers there uh, on the battery technology, for example, or on rare earth metals, etc. Right. I think it was much more a question of how much in, uh, infrastructure money is being spent at the moment to, to develop the charging infrastructure. As you know, we are the global leader in, in, in charges um, yeah. uh, and we are making good progress. Uh, the demand is growing ex exponentially, etc. But you also need, and we talked about that, you need also to have the, the grid system now going into the private households, etc., etc., into uh, real estate, big real estate businesses, etc. And that needs time. Uh, yeah. So therefore, I think that was much more the issue. But there is a strategic issue, which you are pointing to as well, which is we have lived for now a long period with the dependency on OPEC. We have yeah. to be very careful that we are not going to live in an elect electrification OPEC going right. forward, because yeah. today it's very clear that um, if you take on the battery side, if you take the big Chinese players um, in, in some of the components, so four categories of important components for the battery, which makes up 60% of the cost of the battery, they have 85% market share, global market share. Hmm. So what this really tells us in the US and in, in Europe is we need to invest. And uh, therefore you see now uh, investments popping up uh, and we need to go in and, and uh, really do this at certain uh, speed in order to uh, have certain independence another dependency which we have had now for some energy components for the last let's say 50 to 60 years uh, so therefore i think it is absolutely needed to get in there also i think r d will play a role because i think battery technology will evolve further and you will see further um, different technology and innovation solutions for batteries and i think that's where again Europe, for example, and the US are powerhouses in terms of innovation. I think they should get uh, get going uh, on on that side quite clearly. Okay. But, what, what's 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 the what's the government's role, or the European Union's role? Or, you know, as a industrialist in Europe, like what what do you think should what 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 does the um, EU need to do to kind of advance that objective? Or you know, does it need to do much in particular? I think public-private, you can say partnership, but also I think in establishing the right long-term framework and goals is absolutely essential. Um, I'm, and that's what I'm still missing. We get now a lot of infrastructure programs, like in the US, we have one green in, in Europe as well. But I think what we really need is to decide, to define where we want to be, 
how we want to get there, but then leave it actually to industry and society to define which technologies will actually get us to this um, uh, goal. Yeah. Um, there is a tendency to be too much descriptive uh, in the governments today uh, of what should the future energy system look like, right. uh, whilst I think they are responsible for the framework rather than the details of the of the framework. And I, therefore, I think working together in establishing these long-term plans uh, is absolutely vital. And I think for, from that point of view, the last uh, 12 months now uh, have helped in, in that. I think it has helped also to bring industry and uh, governments closer together to discuss actually what is the, the, the right way and the pace uh, of that right way uh, uh, forward. Now, I think we should also find an alignment uh, of these frameworks and business models between the Western societies. Do we ever reach global standards? I would have my question marks there, but at least um, Europe and the US should um, influence that discussion in a, in a harmonized or in a, a kind of a win-win situation so that we are not going after each other because of our infrastructure um, programs. Well, that's, that's a good, well, that's a, good um, a good segue into the um, what's going on at the moment with, um, I mean, literally the European leaders have been talking about this of late, um, uh, how they should respond to the US Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously has all these subsidies. Um, and, you know, from a from a kind of green perspective, it's, it's kind of great in a way that they that the US is taking that seriously, but it does have this kind of element where it may incentivize European companies to go across the Atlantic and not and that might have an impact on jobs at home. Just what, what what's your sense of how, given what you were just saying there, like how, how should Europe respond to the to the RA, the US RA? I mean, the AEB response here is very simple. This is uh, exactly in our in our two main business areas where we are right. um, operating. Right. So that's I'd be welcoming from that point of view. But I think if I take a more strategic view from an industrial point of view, I think, as I said before, we have a unique opportunity here by having the EU, EU and the US team, which has been formed, coming together and look at those two infrastructure drives, so the Green Deal and uh, the Act in the US now, mm. including the CHIPS Act, including the, mm. the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Act, um, yeah. and make this as one plus one is three rather than actually one by going after each other or how much subsidy is paid here or how much local content. I mean, let's be honest, local content has been an issue all over the world. We, we, are, we are living with it. Uh, we can operate under it. Um, I think restrictions who can participate shouldn't exist. And therefore, uh, that's where I would think that um, we could find solutions which will allow European and US uh, companies to benefit from the two or the four acts which are in place now. Uh, and we would have access in the US and they would have access in, in Europe. I think nothing speaks against, against that. ABB, yeah. for example, we produce 90% of what we sell in, in NAFTA. We, we produce over in NAFTA. The same applies for Europe as well. So 
we are ideally positioned actually to help on both sides. And even if you can combine them by free moving technology infrastructure and some uh, less restrictive local content issues, if it's done in Europe and in the US, I think we will get a long way down the road of making this a stronger Western world rather than actually a Western world which fights against each other. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting you, you mentioned this kind of this block with the, the US and the, um, and, uh, the EU uh, and you do a lot of your business there. It does seem like one of the one of the kind of implications or the consequences of the Ukraine war and what what's that, that's done to the energy market is that Russia might be focusing less on the, the European continent and more on China. And you can see what where they're selling their oil. Does that does that basically mean that, you know, increasingly more big European and American companies will be much more focused on the block that you're talking about and that ABB is 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 focused on to the exclusion of of um, having so many operations in what could be the other block, which would be kind of Russia, China and, you know, that part of the world. No, I I think that's not just ABB, but I will use ABB as an example, but in general, we are all global companies. So we have learned to manage various blocks where it is possible globally. We do it globally, uh, but we have learned to operate in different ways, either driven by technology restrictions, uh, driven by different local content, other issues. So when I talk about we should not stand in our way in the Western world, uh, it's just not to get a disadvantage from a competitive point of view. So right. China is ABB's second biggest market. 90% of what we sell in China is produced in China. So we are using the same philosophy. Right. Whatever Chinese uh, infrastructure programs there are, we are participating in them. The same would apply to Latin America or to Africa. Uh, so I'm not saying we will only focus on that. We have a kind of a strategic aim. So far, we had a third, 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 the Americas, a third in Europe, and roughly a third in Asia. Why should we expect Asia to grow faster? Because purely population-driven, we would still op op optimize the three blocks, but we would clearly see that the resilience of supply chain will force companies to be self-sufficient in the blocks in terms of supply chains, whilst right. I could see that the US and Europe together could have a supply chain which is slightly different design than, for example, what we do in China. So I think that's the way we are, I would approach it strategically, not just in ABB, but in general. Okay, so it's a more, it's a supply chain, the supply chains maybe become less global and become more in peculiar to wherever the, uh, wherever the manufacturing is happening, but like, you, you're still that, that that doesn't mean that you don't want as a company to do business globally as you were were doing before. Yeah, but it's not just supply chain. Don't it's a little bit too narrow because I think there is another big element happening, which is sustainability driven. Right. Today's consumers they want to have products which are more sustainable, but also have a more local, regional element in it from a manufacturing point of view. So right. you have a drive to get closer to the end consumers, and therefore you are operating much more in the markets themselves, like the EU or in, in, in the US. 
And today we can do this without increasing costs too much because the automation and the robotization you can use when you build these um, new supply chains closer to the end customers, you can actually increase it. That was what I said at the beginning. It's not just sustainability, it is also uh, productivity. You can build them today with the same or even enhanced productivity by automating and robotizing your manufacturing. So right. this all plays together in the way we look at uh, strategic changes which our customers and consumers are facing. Okay, interesting. Just a, a question that kind of tie, ties together um, some of the things we've been talking about. I mean, to have uh, an electrified world, uh, fairly obviously you need, you need chips. Um, uh, as lots of people have pointed out, there is a kind of geographical vulnerability of from the, from the, in the chip sector based around Taiwan. And I mean, we've seen in the last year that things that people didn't necessarily expect to happen geopolitically can happen so like you know how do you think about the that that kind of chip vulnerability um if there is if tensions escalate over over taiwan obviously there it is quite clear there was a strong dependency on uh on taiwan and still is also to a certain extent to chips actually manufactured in china maybe yeah. not as complex as powerful as those in taiwan and clearly that gave us quite a bit of us, I mean, ADB and others, uh, quite a bit of supply um, um, chain uh, constraints in the early part of, two, of 22. Yeah. I think what's now coming with uh, the CHIP Act, what's discussions also uh, in Europe about chip manufacturing is going the right way. I think there was a certain naivety in, the, in our thinking, or maybe there, the Europeans are much more global trade focused and believe that the global trade will, will kind of um, function irrespective of the environment you are in or we are in, geopolitically speaking, war, etc. And I think that wake-up call has, has been received and uh, that is now uh, being corrected. Um, it will take a few years before we are there. I think the world helps at the moment because I think we, have, we are certainly no longer in an undercapacity. Most probably we have now more chips available than what is needed in the world, uh, but that will come up again. So I think we have got to fix this. Um, so I think um, the next few years uh, we will need to, to address this. And it's, um, I said it at, uh, earlier on about the battery manufacturing. That's the other wake-up call, where yeah. you just depend on one source, and there are more in the world, and I think they will be now addressed. And I think in any company, in any board, risk management coming out of these um, supply chain, manufacturing uh, strategies, dependency strategy, single source strategy, uh, maybe have one global manufacturing place, they're all being scrutinized and changed over time. And, and yeah. therefore, I think uh, we have learned the, less, the lesson and uh, over the next two, three, four years, we will see major shifts in in uh, very critical critical components. But, but I mean, in terms of that, like if you're managing your company, you're, 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 you're sitting on the board working out where your vulnerabilities are, like, I mean, how, what do you do about the, the battery 
issue there. I mean, I, I know you mentioned it before, but like, um, if you, I mean, you may want you may want to kind of diversify your supplies, but like, how do you do that? I mean, you you, you know, it, it's it's quite difficult to just will it into happening, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, say ABB is less of an issue because I explain them how we produce locally, sell locally. So yeah. this supply chain strategy has clearly helped us um, over the last um, uh, last few years now, or let's say the last uh, 12, 14 months. Um, quite clearly, uh, there is more to be done and we are doing that. For others in the industries, I mean, you can't change that overnight because there is heavy capital investments involved. A, which has not been fully utilized where it stands today, and you need capital to, to build again. So I think this is a, a, a will go on over a period. Um, we talked consumer um, behavior is changing. That will be a forcing element. Does that lead to higher prices because it's locally sourced? That could be one element on how we can actually uh, justify further investments. Uh, the next one is we will have um, shortages of people in many geographies, like in Europe. Uh, demographics play a role there. Uh, that yeah. means you need to more automate, you need to more robotize. And then yeah. you need to think through, do I do this in my plant, which I don't want to have long term? Or do I make now the step to actually build smaller units or agile units, fully automated, closer to the markets? And I think uh, that's the discussion which is ongoing. And therefore, um, if you can fix it through the prices one way, you are forced because of uh, skill shortage, then you can justify your investment. Or otherwise, it will just take another five, 10 years before you have fully utilized uh, over, I don't know, 20 years, your plant you have in in a, in a certain country before you can move it. So I think uh, that this is a process of another 10, 10 plus years. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, well, I think we're going to leave it there. But um, Peter uh, just wants to say thanks for joining us on the exchange. No, thank you very much for having me. And I um, wish all of us the foresight, which we will need over the next few years to get the world back to where it should be. <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> thanks cheers bye thanks for tuning in this podcast was produced by thomas shum in hong kong you can find more episodes on megaphone or your favorite podcast app also check out our sister podcast the views room and check us out at breakingviews.com and on twitter where our handle is at breakingviews.